The year was roughly 1361 BCE, and the Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep was about to celebrate the Said Festival. This royal jubilee was in honor of his 30th year in power, and his young son, Akhenaten, was thrilled at the spectacle. Akhenaten watched as countless workers excavated two artificial harbors on either side of the Nile. Each was nearly half a mile long, displacing a massive quantity of sand and soil. This earth was then used as the foundation of a temporary city, built solely for one unbelievable party. On the day of the celebration, the pharaoh welcomed a horde of guests and dignitaries at the doors of his palace. He showered them all with gifts of golden necklaces and ornaments in the shapes of ducks and fish, the symbols of fertility. The pharaoh was clothed in gold from head to toe, shining like the sun. He presented himself as a symbol of bright, warm comfort for his people. Akhenaten also wanted to shine warmth over the Egyptian people one day. But once he took the throne, Akhenaten wouldn't be a golden light for Egypt, but an inferno that threatened to incinerate the empire. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we're exploring the life of Akhenaten, the 10th pharaoh of ancient Egypt's 18th dynasty. Among the most controversial of all pharaohs, Akhenaten instituted what some consider the world's first monotheistic religion. Centering on worship of the Aten, a sun god depicted as a solar disk, Akhenaten's cult was forcibly imposed upon his subjects. As a result, his reign brought oppression and upheaval to Egypt. This week, we'll dive into the origins of Akhenaten's dynasty, the early years of his reign, and the revolutionary theology he implemented. Next week, we'll look at how his regime became increasingly brutal, his incestuous family life, and the tumultuous end of his dynasty. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Of all the ancient Egyptian pharaohs, few are more scrutinized than Akhenaten. In fact, few major historical figures are as unusual or divisive as the young pharaoh. Akhenaten brought a religious fervor to Egypt that was unprecedented. But Akhenaten's theology, while radical, didn't appear from nowhere. It was the culmination of conflicts, ideological shifts, and societal changes that had been building for generations. His reign took place during what we now call the Egyptian New Kingdom, a period of imperial ambition and military might that lasted from roughly 1550 to 1070 BCE. But before this period was a time of foreign domination and chaos. The northern half of Egypt was ruled by a people of Palestinian origin called the Hyksos. Confusingly, the northern half of Egypt is called Lower Egypt, and its southern half is Upper Egypt. 
This is because the northern section of the Nile River, the main artery of Egyptian civilization, flows north into the Mediterranean. The Hyksos ruled Lower Egypt and the Nile Delta, while in the south, a native Egyptian kingdom, now called the 17th Dynasty, ruled from Thebes. For many years, the two kingdoms lived side by side in mutual suspicion and intermittent warfare. The Hyksos had conquered Lower Egypt thanks in part to their newly developed weapons, particularly the horse and chariot, the sickle-shaped sword, and composite bow. However, over several generations, the Theban dynasty steadily reconquered Lower Egypt. During the reign of Amos I, from around 1550 to 1525 BCE, the last of the Hyksos kings were expelled, and all of Egypt was once again reunited. Today, we recognize Amos as having founded a new dynasty, the 18th, and thus kicking off the era we call the New Kingdom. The dynasty's third king, Thutmose I, took the throne in 1506 BCE. During his reign, Thutmose launched a series of military expeditions that expanded Egypt's borders further than ever before. Egypt's territory now stretched from modern-day Sudan to the Euphrates in modern-day Syria. For the first time in generations, the pharaoh was once again seen as the mighty overlord of a powerful kingdom. Both within and outside Egypt, the dignity of the kingship was higher than it had been in decades. Thutmose handed down a strong, dynamic Egypt to his son Thutmose II. He was later succeeded by his own son, Thutmose III, who came to the throne as a child. As such, his stepmother, Hatshepsut, ruled along with him. Hatshepsut soon proclaimed herself as king. Hatshepsut succeeded in her bid for power thanks to the support of the priests of the god Amun. At their temple at Thebes, Hatshepsut was considered the high priestess there. Often in Egypt's history, the power of the priestly class was second only to that of the king. Any Egyptian ruler who wanted to keep their throne donated generously to the kingdom's many temples and appointed its priests to important posts. During the rise of the Theban dynasty, the god Amun grew in importance, and so did his priests. According to Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves, Amun's temple, serviced by vast agricultural estates, administered by an immense bureaucracy and controlling numberless serfs and slaves, gradually grew in influence to take in shipping, manufacturing, mining, and other worldly concerns. Amun was considered a creator god and the patron deity of Thebes. The kings of the 18th dynasty elevated Amun's worship to the status of a national cult, one which was closely associated with the dynasty itself. Amun was also conflated with the sun god Ra, a gesture which may have been intended to unify the country. He was sometimes called Amun-Ra. Thus, Amun, the pharaoh's family, and the might of imperial Egypt all became symbolically intertwined. Hatshepsut continued the family policy of promoting Amun, claiming descent from the god. 
Her reign stretched over two decades, marked by the construction of various ambitious building projects, including her mortuary temple, in order to entrench Amun's cult. However, Hatshepsut died in 1458 BCE, and Thutmose III was finally able to rule independently. Perhaps to reassert himself, he launched a campaign against his stepmother's memory, eradicating as many of her monuments as he could. With Egypt's next two successors, Amenhotep II and Thutmose IV, the Egyptian state entered into a period of relative peace. With foreign enemies contained for the moment, attention was turned to curbing the excessive power and influence of the priesthood of Amun. Under Hatshepsut, immense royal power had been delegated to the priesthood, since she needed their support to keep her throne. Now her successors once again centralized authority under the pharaoh alone by filling government posts with trusted military officials, not priests. Thutmose IV also worshipped the sun god Ra over Amun. For him, the two gods were not the same. In Karnak, which was the bastion of Amun's cult, the pharaoh even erected a massive obelisk dedicated to Ra alone. Adding to his disregard of Amun, Thutmose IV also occasionally wore a golden disc associated with the sun. This honored aspect of Ra's visible body is called the Aten. Traditionally, Ra was depicted as a falcon-headed man, but the Aten portrayed him as a sun with rays of light that ended in human hands. Thutmose IV died sometime around 1391 or 1388 BCE. He was succeeded by his son, Amenhotep III, who continued the process of aligning himself with Ra as the creator god. Coming to the throne as a child, Amenhotep was eager to prove his fitness to rule. This manifested in the pharaoh's many building projects, like a mile-long artificial lake in the desert. For over 20 years, the pharaoh's building projects continued without pause. According to historian Toby Wilkinson, Amenhotep III was Egypt's greatest royal builder since the foundation of the kingdom 1,500 years earlier. Amenhotep III's crowning project was a massive temple. It covered 93 acres and featured some of the largest statues ever carved in Egypt. In fact, it was to become the largest royal temple in ancient Egypt's history. Nearby, Amenhotep chose a site to build another grand temple, this time for a radical purpose. Virtually every other place of worship in Egypt's history was the cult center of a deity. But at his new temple, called Luxor, Amenhotep III wanted to become a deity. At Luxor, Amenhotep III hosted the annual festival of Opet, in which he absorbed the Ka, or divine essence. In other words, Amenhotep used his newest building project to become a living god. Egyptian kings had long identified themselves with deities, but according to Wilkinson, no king before Amenhotep III had dared to state quite so openly and unequivocally, his outright mutation into the creator deity. 
Essentially, over his long 40-year reign, Amenhotep created a cult of personality unlike any other in Egypt's history. Wilkinson even called the cult one of bewildering intensity. But even as a living god, Amenhotep couldn't escape mortality. As his father grew older, his son Akhenaten eyed the throne. He was determined to outdo his father and even become a living god himself. Coming up, Akhenaten introduces some radical changes to Egyptian culture. Put yourself in the shoes of a real-life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history, following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases, like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions, and the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the time of Akhenaten's birth in the 14th century BCE, Egypt's 18th dynasty was well-established. The influence of Amun priests, the power of royal women, and an elaborate cult of personality around the pharaoh all played critical roles in the development of Akhenaten's reign. Few specifics are known of Akhenaten's early years, though he undoubtedly witnessed his father's cult of personality firsthand. According to Wilkinson, the dazzling solar imagery in particular seems to have burned itself into the young man's fertile imagination. Akhenaten was one of at least six children born to Amenhotep III and his wife Tia. He was the second son and so was not expected to rule. His older brother, Thutmose, was entrusted to the high priest of Ptah at Memphis, likely to get an education in leadership. Meanwhile, Akhenaten may have been enrolled in the priesthood of Ra, the sun god. However, the family and Egyptian history took a dramatic turn. Akhenaten's brother, Thutmose, suddenly died. The precise date is not known, but some believe it happened on the eve of the Jubilee celebration of their father's 30-year reign. The cause of Thutmose's death is unknown, but it appears to have happened quickly. We also don't know whether Akhenaten was saddened by the loss of his brother or pleased that his own status was now elevated. Either way, Akhenaten was now heir. It is possible that Akhenaten acted as co-regent with his father for a time. This likely began late in Amenhotep's reign, when Akhenaten was old enough to learn the responsibilities of ruling Egypt. However, it is also possible that Akhenaten never ruled alongside his father. Instead, he may have had his first taste of true power upon his father's death. 
Amenhotep was middle-aged when he died around 1353 BCE. At the time, Akhenaten was still a teenager, but that didn't stop him from taking his father's place at the center of the Egyptian kingdom. Traditionally, pharaohs were supposed to be magnificent, powerful demigods who could keep the forces of chaos at bay and bring prosperity to the land. According to a 2010 study analyzing the mummy believed to be Akhenaten, he may have had scoliosis and other physical ailments. Many Egyptologists have speculated that this could have been due to the practice of incest. Egypt's kings and queens had the habit of marrying their siblings, partly because the gods were married to their siblings and the kings wanted to be like gods. This practice kept power within the royal family. However, generations of incest can produce genetic disorders. Even if his physique didn't match presumed ideas of strength, Akhenaten did use his power to introduce a revolutionary new ideology to the world. We don't know exactly when Akhenaten embraced his radical religious beliefs, but it wasn't immediate. The seeds may have been planted during childhood, when he was struck with awe by the solar iconography of Ra and the Aten in his father's building projects. He may have also been influenced by his uncle, Anan, who was the high priest of Ra. In any case, at the outset of his reign, the young pharaoh either hadn't developed his theology or wasn't prepared to share it with the world. Instead, his first act was to complete his father's last monument at Ipetsut. To him, it was likely a proper act of filial obedience. But Akhenaten couldn't resist adding images of himself to the stone structure, like scenes of the teenage pharaoh crushing Egypt's foreign enemies. Afterward, he founded a new town in Nubia and dedicated a temple there to Amun-Ra. According to Toby Wilkinson, Everything seemed set for another glorious reign in the familiar dynastic mold. Shortly after taking the throne, Akhenaten's true personality began to manifest itself. And it was not always pleasant. Akhenaten's arrogance may have been encouraged by the homage that foreign kings paid to the young pharaoh. The ruler of Tyre sent a letter which read, I fall at the feet of the king. My lord is the sun who comes forth over all lands day by day. However, eventually it seems the letters sent to the young pharaoh were no longer fawning, but increasingly frustrated. One letter that may have been sent to the newly crowned king complained of Akhenaten's insulting habit of putting his own name above those of his correspondents and of his condescension toward other kings. It seemed Akhenaten viewed himself as something greater and more special than a mere king. Perhaps these letters reveal a rebellious phase, an eagerness to flout authority, which would have been difficult for Akhenaten because he was the authority. Without anyone above him, he only had other kings around to suffer his disregard. Akhenaten was very young, and he was utterly convinced that he knew what was right. And, with youthful impatience and enthusiasm, he was likely eager to impose his solutions to the world's problems as quickly as possible. 
According to Nicholas Reeves, the pharaoh was a man with a mission. Of rare intelligence, recognizably well-tutored in the theological minutiae, and thoroughly versed in the arcana of the temple archives, despite his age, he was certain in his beliefs and determined to share them. And what he had in mind for Egypt was unprecedented. A year or so after becoming pharaoh, Akhenaten announced a new building program. This was not so unusual. After all, for decades, his father had construction teams working virtually around the clock. But Akhenaten demanded even more than his father. Throughout all of Egypt, he ordered labor conscriptions, far more than had ever been called up previously. And while his father built at various sites up and down the Nile River, Akhenaten concentrated all his efforts in a single location. It was an empty region next to the temple of Ipetsut. Among the various monuments planned there, the grandest was a temple dedicated to the Aten. The temple would be called Jempaten, or the Aten is found. It featured 20-foot-tall statues of Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti, depicted as the creator gods. According to Toby Wilkinson, where Amenhotep III had stressed his sun-like role in maintaining the universe, his son wished to be associated with the very act of creation. Unlike the temples of Amen, which were dark and enclosed, the temples of the Aten were open so that the divine sun could shine down on them. Later, Akhenaten built similar temples at Memphis, Heliopolis, and other sites. While the Jempaten was under construction, Akhenaten decided to celebrate a Sed festival. The ceremony was supposed to be a jubilee celebrating the 30th anniversary of a pharaoh's reign. Akhenaten celebrated his in just the second or third year of his rule. Some pharaohs celebrated their Sed festivals early, and they were more so seen as a continuation of the previous pharaoh's rule. In fact, Akhenaten's said festival may have been partly in honor of his father's 40th jubilee. But even if Akhenaten had presented the said festival as a nod to his father, the pharaoh intended this particular celebration to be a break with the past rather than a continuation. Typically, the festival was dedicated to the old gods like Ptah, Osiris, and Amun. This time, only the Aten was given offerings. And rather than asking one of the traditional deities to rejuvenate him as pharaoh, Akhenaten asked the Aten to bathe him in its life-giving rays. Therefore, this particular said festival may have been seen as something like the public announcement of Akhenaten's new theology. He intended to place the Aten above all other gods, and the said festival was his declaration of this. The public's reaction to this unusual celebration is unknown. Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep, had paid homage to the Aten before, so perhaps it didn't seem so revolutionary. Nevertheless, Akhenaten changed how the Aten was portrayed. The last vestiges of the falcon-headed Aten that resembled Ra were gone. And for the first time, the god's name was stylized in the manner of pharaohs and held in the same esteem. 
According to Nicholas Reeves, it is as if the Aten were a king, which is how, in effect, the god was henceforth regarded. Furthermore, Akhenaten was appropriating and expanding the cult of personality established by his father. It seemed the image of Amenhotep III dressed in gold at his first Sed festival, shining like the sun, was what Akhenaten wanted to emulate. So, as the child of the solar deity, Akhenaten felt he was due to be honored as no other pharaoh had been before. And those who failed to do so would face his wrath. Coming up, Akhenaten announces his bold new plans for Egypt. Now back to the story. Around 1350 BCE, in the second or third year of Akhenaten's reign, the teenage pharaoh raised the Aten above all other gods. At a magnificent Sed festival, he announced his plans to make Aten the greatest god, and himself as the sun deity's lone prophet. In addition to new temples and statues, a new artistic style seems to have accompanied Akhenaten's ascension. Previously, the official style was formal, restrained, and dignified. But Akhenaten introduced a new style practically overnight. It was more informal and exaggerated. Egyptologist Aidan Dodson describes the style as the human body was distorted to emphasize the hip, thigh, abdomen, and breast regions, coupled with swan necks, fleshy lips, and the rear of the skull extended backward. The new style appears to be entirely of Akhenaten's own devising, for his chief sculptor admitted that he was merely a disciple whom his majesty himself instructed. Akhenaten didn't leave an explanation for the new style, but likely the purpose was to emphasize the break with the past. The exaggeration of the figures may have been intended to highlight the pharaoh's specialness, that he was closer to the divine than mere humans. Alternatively, the new style, or at least around the pharaoh's depiction, may have actually reflected reality. According to Egyptologist Alwyn Burridge, it's possible that Akhenaten suffered from Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder that could have affected his connective tissue and caused physical complications. Thus portraying Akhenaten with a long neck and limbs and an elongated head may not have been an attempt to make him seem more godlike, but rather a sincere, accurate depiction. Whatever the truth of the young pharaoh's appearance, there was another crucial component to his revolutionary art, the Aten. Everywhere in the new style, the Aten is shown shining on Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti, shooting life-giving rays onto them. But Akhenaten's new style also transcended art into the real world. According to Nicholas Reeves, the adoption of the new iconography was accompanied by a series of revolutionary changes which would entail the reversal of every aspect of Egyptian life, from modes of religious worship to language and terms of address. For Akhenaten, a new type of king required a new brand. So a year after his Sed festival, when he may have been in his early 20s, the pharaoh officially changed his name from Amenhotep IV 
to Akhenaten, which meant effective for the Aten. Pharaohs had a long tradition of taking on new names to signify a shift in policy. But a pharaoh changing his birth name, as Akhenaten did, was highly unusual. It seemed to signify that he was about to take Egypt into a new era. In the same year that Akhenaten changed his name, he announced that he wished to build a new capital for Egypt. The ancient cities of Memphis and Thebes were no longer sufficient. Akhenaten declared that the new capital would be called Akhetaten, or Horizon of the Aten. The site he chose was on the east bank of the Nile River, 200 miles south of Memphis and 250 miles north of Thebes. An inscription describing the foundation of the city asserts that no one encouraged the pharaoh to build the city. Instead, he was divinely inspired. It was the Aten itself who told him to do it. In Akhenaten's words, it is the Aten, my father, who advised me concerning it, saying, Behold, fill Akhetaten with provisions, a storehouse for everything. If the inscription is sincere, then the decision to build Akhetaten was the king's and the king's alone. It wasn't for economic benefit, but rather motivated by religious zeal. It seemed Akhenaten wished to build a proper home for his deity. Unfortunately, the stone inscription is badly broken where it explains the political motivations for moving the capital. All that is left are hints of the pharaoh's frustration in hearing something worse than he had heard in previous years. We don't know what this terrible news was, but a strong possibility is that the pharaoh was facing resistance to his cult of the Aten. Perhaps his new theological policies had been blocked by the priests of Amun. Certainly those priests would not have appreciated the spurning of their god in favor of the Aten. Unfortunately, there is no conclusive evidence to illuminate what events sparked the pharaoh's ire and convinced him of the need to move the capital. The best we can assume is that Akhenaten decided that building a new capital was a way to rule without resistance. The fact that the new capital would be so far away from Thebes, the stronghold of the Amun priesthood, is telling. If Akhenaten had failed in previous attempts to remove the priesthood from the government, then he would remove the government from the priesthood. Undoubtedly, Akhenaten had multiple motivations for the change in scenery. He must have felt a glorious new city was needed to properly honor his new god. And there was the desire to exalt himself and his reign. All pharaohs built monuments to aggrandize themselves, though Akhenaten took this old tradition one step further. Rather than a temple or a pyramid, as they did in the era of the Old Kingdom, he wanted to build an entire city. The new capital was to be built on about 21 square miles of land. According to the pharaoh, the city limits were immutable and sacred. Running north to south through the city would be the royal road, which took you to the heart of the Akhetaten. At the center were two magnificent buildings called the King's House and the Great Palace. Both featured heavily decorated walls and floors, with a bridge over the royal road to connect them. 
The piece de resistance of the city would be the House of Aten, just north of the king's house. The planned temple was 750 feet long and featured plenty of offering tables. Every day, these would be piled high with food and drink for the Aten. The temple would even have its own bakery and brewery to provide the necessary supplies. Once the pharaoh moved his household to the city, dozens of government officials would move with him. Each of those would bring hordes of assistants, scribes, attendants, and their families. Meanwhile, priests would be appointed to the city's temples, soldiers to the barracks, and so on all of whom would need to be supported by various bakers, butchers, brewers, and craftsmen. Such crowds would attract even more people looking for work, and soon the capital would be a crowded, bustling metropolis. Finally, throughout the city, there would be images of the Aten and the royal family. Even the tombs of Akhenaten's supporters, which traditionally reflected the status of their owners, would be dominated by images of the king. Even in death, one was expected to celebrate the pharaoh. Akhenaten had all this planned for his new capital and more. In his mind, the city of Akhetaten would be magnificent, greater and grander than anything seen before, and wholly dedicated to the Aten. Far more than the said festival, it would mark the beginning of a new age, not just for Egypt, but all of humanity. But in the new glorious city, his paranoia, zealotry, and despotism would run rampant and lead to a brutal conclusion for the fledgling Sun King. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the construction of Akhenaten's new capital, his ferocious conflict with the Amun priesthood, and the chaotic downfall of his family. Among the many sources we used, we found Nicholas Reeves' Akhenaten, Egypt's False Prophet, and Toby Wilkinson's The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt, incredibly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.